This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Yeah, <laughs> they have asked for that, really. France are going to the World Cup. Get over it. This fellow Ronaldo is a cod. Boom, 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 foul. Boom, 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 yellow card. Nah, it's actually a I have to ask you to mind your language. And I suggest you shut up and show more football. Good lad. I don't throw teacups. It's not my style. You got a lot of chop punches. What you doing down here, you surely man? <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Irish Times Second Happens Football Podcast brought to you by, oh, my David. Hi there. Ken Early. Hi, on, how are you? Good, Kieran Murphy. Hello there, Owen. How are you all doing? This time last week, you might remember, I was expressing my shock, indignation almost, that the bookies seemed to have already decided that the Premier League title was a foregone conclusion mm. after Manchester City's win in the derby. You can't just write off a Jose Mourinho-managed Manchester United team who spent hundreds of millions of pounds, I reasoned. Mm-hmm. Not unreasonably, I thought at the time, but since then, United have been beaten by Feyenoord, beaten by Watford. City have crushed Borussia Mönchengladbach and Bournemouth, both by 4-0. And I may have to admit that I think the bookies might be onto something after all. City have won, obviously, just having a look at the results so far. So, they, obviously, they've won all their competitive games under Pep. Averaging more than three goals a game. They've pushed their average up to over three with those two 4-0 wins. Yeah. And uh, as you pointed out this morning, Ken, this is the first time in 14 years that a Jose Mourinho team has lost three matches in a row in the same season. That's right, yeah. They, they did, Chelsea did do it over 2006, the summer, but two of those matches were at the end of the season. They'd already won the title. So, you know, the way they kind of clock off. Mm. And then the next match was the Community Shield, the first match of the next season. So it wasn't really three in a, it wasn't like three in a week like we've just had. Albeit, that's it. So you were saying that was his title winning season at Chelsea, the most recent? That was, no, it was after his. Um, 2006, wasn't it? Yeah, 2006. Oh, sorry, sorry. So, so 2006 was the second of the two titles that he won in his first period at Chelsea. So it was the 2007-8 season was a was a not so good. Yeah, so it's funny. Six, sorry, 6-7 season he didn't yeah. win the league. So actually, that, even though they might have been matches where they clocked off, it could have been the start of a bit of a decline back then. Anyway, that's a, that's a number of years ago now. But City in particular are just looking insanely ominous. Well, they did do the same thing last season. I mean, they won five. They won the first five in the league last season as well. Um, they didn't... They, they And they look pretty impressive, it has to be said. It wasn't as though they... I think maybe this season they've, they've obviously gone up uh, 
level. But they did look good at the at the uh, beginning of last season. It looked as though they were going to easily win the title after five matches, and then they finished fifteen points off the off Leicester. <laughs> so they the things went really badly wrong. It doesn't look as though things are going to get that bad uh, for them this season. Uh, you know, as a lot of people are saying over the weekend, Owen, they've simply got the biggest brain in the world uh, directing their operations. Uh, young Ilkay Gundogan, oh, yeah. uh, who comes in and scores his first goal, finishing off a nice move. Uh, afterwards, is asked to uh, talk about his two managers, uh, two big managers he's had in his career, Jurgen Klopp at Dortmund and, uh, and of course, Pep Guardiola. Mm. Uh, he said, it wouldn't be fair to say Jurgen's more emotional, but when you see him on the sidelines living every minute, it's not hard to understand why Dortmund were so successful. Pep is equally passionate, but in a different way. He is more like a genius who reads the game and covers every situation imaginable. <laughs> He's always showing us how to create space and find solutions. There is no manager like him, which makes him probably the best in the world. So uh, that's that's a pretty glowing... Yeah, yeah these, these compare and contrast questions that footballers get. On the uh, one uh, hand, uh, Jurgen Klopp is waves his arms about it. Yeah. On the other hand, Pep Guardiola is a genius. A genius. He is more like a genius. <laughs> more like a genius. Who understands every imaginable situation. Um, what about Joshua Kimmich, the young man from Rottweil, uh, currently uh, Bayern Munich, uh, obviously worked with Pep there. He says, I've seen Manchester City's games against United and Borussia Mönchengladbach. The way they're topping the table is extremely commanding. It's fascinating to see the way he's been able to leave his mark on the team in such a short space of time. They play a completely different football than last season. If I'm honest, I'm not surprised, however. In Germany, some people said he failed at Bayern because he didn't win the Champions League. But Bayern were rarely as dominant as under him when they won three championships in a row. He somewhat revolutionised football here. I believe his influence in England will be devastating, too. So, Jesus, I hope he doesn't get a big, uh, isn't prone to a big head. <laughs> Yeah. Well, what about Pep himself? Uh, Let's get into the report. Let's get some back and track onto this. That's a bad weekend. Pep wasn't talking about how amazing he was. He leaves that to other people. Literally everyone else in the world. I am a sort of a genius. He did say, Bournemouth were the best team we have played until now. Uh, I am doing this deliberately in Champions League Weekly voice, although he was speaking in English in his own voice. He, it wasn't like he was being dubbed in Champions League Weekly. But uh, <laughs> Champions League weekly voice. Bournemouth were the best team we have played until now. They could create more problems when they had the ball than other teams who played long balls. They wanted God, to play. A, that's an amazing Andrea Pirlo uh, uh, impersonation you got going there again. Uh, they they create. They were the best team we have played until now. They could create more problems when they had the ball than other teams who played long balls. They wanted to play. Wow. <laughs> Bournemouth. I mean, Bournemouth. Uh, if Bournemouth are the best team Manchester City have played, they must be riding high. Oh, no, they're, they're not. They've uh, just lost 4-0 to Manchester City. They beat West Brom 1-0. Uh, they've drawn one all with Crystal Palace, beaten Morecambe in the League Cup, uh, lost 1-0 to West Ham, and lost 3-1 to Manchester United. Um, I think I see where you're going with this, Ken. The beginning well, of the... Well... Mm, can I say it? Mind games between Pep Guardiola and is it, what if you mind games or is he just is he just trying taking to the insult? piss out of them? Is he because <laughs> it, it is it is it is sort of it's like obviously Bournemouth are not as good as Manchester. Although Pep is saying, look, you know that he saw some things. He's making a slightly hipsterish point about the quality of mm. of uh, Bournemouth's football. Although if Bournemouth are so great, yeah. what were they doing losing to West Ham? Whatever, leave, leave aside Manchester United. You know, yeah. United who who scored for them in that game? You know, Zlatan. Yeah. You know, Bournemouth. Find it difficult to attract players on that uh, level, 
But, you know, they lost to West Ham. West Ham are getting stripped by everyone this season. Johnny Evans, uh, over the weekend of West Brom, had a, like, a, it was like vivisection. His, his analysis of, of uh, West Ham was just so cold. It was like, there they are on this, on this cold slab, just dissected by this, by, um, this unfeeling surgeon in, in, um, in Johnny Evans. He said, well, Scalpel, you know, please. They play a lot of, he said, that, you know, they play a really direct, uh, they, play, or they play a really open, expansive game. They leave loads of players up the field for the counter-attack. And last season, frankly, they caught a lot of teams out. But this season, teams are ready for them. Everyone's watched them. Everyone knows what they're about. Uh, we knew that if we, uh, you know, we knew what we needed to do in the final third. We knew that when they didn't have the ball, they leave guys up the field and we could hurt them. Four, four goals to West Brom. That doesn't happen very often. Wow. That's how bad West Ham are. Now get this carcass out of here, Johnny Evans. <laughs> now, and, and, and I'm, I'm not sure how, how Eddie Howe, the Bournemouth manager, who, who talked yesterday about his own, you know, penchant for analysis. And, you know, he, he's obviously he's a, he's a young manager. He's a hardworking manager. Um, he's always looking to find the space, you know, like certain other managers. Mm-hmm. How he didn't spot any of that yawning space between West Ham's attack and West Ham's defence. But, you know, uh, maybe is, the Bournemouth game plan just didn't come off that day. Uh, is the Pep, Bournemouth are the best team we've played. Is that, well, obviously it's, well, maybe not obviously, but it, it sounds like nonsense. And is there also a, a element of Bournemouth are the best team we've, uh, we've played? And by that I mean they're the team that are most like us, only with far inferior players, which means that we can beat them and it feels like a fair game. You know, everyone's everyone's in agreement as to how football should be played, and everyone is also in agreement that we have far better players. Therefore, we will win the game four 0 Well, it could it could be in, in the you know the sort of family resemblance is what he's talking about, or, or the sort of tribute act style of board, Bournemouth. I mean, if you do if you look at Man City's games, their opponents have been Sunderland, uh, Bucharest, Stoke, who we'll be talking about later, Stoa, Stoke. Stoya, Stoa, 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 Bucharest, uh, West Ham, Man United, Gladbach, and Bournemouth. So they actually really haven't played too many, too many of the top teams. What are you? Where's <laughs> wagging his finger at me for my Stoa, Bucharest? No, I, I was just I, trying to help come out of a hole. I wasn't deliberately landing no, a terrible was, pun in there. He slightly, maybe he had Stoke in his head. He mispronounced Stoa. I was just trying to. I was actually it, waving you a, off. I was like, minute. "Don't come at me with this yeah, bullshit, old yeah. <laughs> Stoic." Bucharest. Anyway, Ken, please. Look, um, so so they haven't really played. It's not as though there's, there's you know uh, Brazil 1970, you know Real Madrid 1958 on the list of City's opponents so far. Um, uh, Bournemouth, I'd say, would definitely be in the top half of those opponents. Um, the biggest scalp they've taken, I suppose, so far is is Manchester United. Um, and Manchester United obviously have have had their scalp taken a number of times. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the in the last few days, um, and so Jose Mourinho was talking after this game, and he he gave three he he split it up into three factors. Number one, referees' mistakes cost us again. Number two, lady luck, which sounds a bit like referees' mistakes. You know, it's it's kind of the same type of ballpark of a thing, um, but I, I suppose he likes to make arguments using three points it sounds better if you say if, if you split it into three as opposed to two so referees mistakes I don't control lady look don't control performance of team 
okay, uh, yeah, I admit some responsibility in that area. <laughs> performance of team, performance of players. I suppose uh, I've, you know that's something that that is within my control, and that's something that we will seek to improve. And he raised a specific tactical point. It doesn't happen too often that managers do this, but he raised a specific point um, in his uh, in his post match press conference. We'll hear what he had to say. The first Man City goal and this second goal, you can find an incredible similarity, which is. Kolarov has the ball in a difficult situation in the corner and my players, instead of go up and press, they decide to give space. And today in the second goal, I think is Amrabat that was on the right side getting the ball. He receives the ball. Our left back is 25 meters distance from him instead of be five. But even 25, then you have to jump and go and press. No, we wait. This is a, a tactical, but it's also a mental attitude. And it's something that you don't go there, and in a couple of weeks, everything becomes, becomes, uh, becomes perfect. So we have to improve, no doubt. That city goal he's talking about, that's the, the one we d- dissected last week yes. where Rooney was having a pop at Mkhitaryan for not going and closing down Kolarov. Yeah, that's the one. And he was drawing a parallel between that and his second uh, Watford goal, Zinjigit's goal, the ultimately winning goal in the game, which I was a bit puzzled by, actually, because I was looking back at it and I thought, really? I, I, didn't, I didn't see it as, this, as the same situation. Mm. Although, obviously, Jose Mourinho does. So what he's saying, the similarity is, is basically that uh, Amrabat, as he says, is given too much time in the ball by Luke Shaw, who isn't quick enough out to press him. Now, it is a, it's a different situation because Amrabat had the ball about 10 yards, 10 or 20 yards inside Manchester United's half. Whereas when Kolarov had the ball, he was standing literally beside his own corner flag. It's a different area of the mm. pitch, you know what I mean? Um, but he, he now seems to be saying, I mean, we were talking last week about it's a bit of a mystery what's, what Mkhitaryan's supposed to do here. Is he supposed to, as Wayne Rooney and the crowd were saying, get up and press? Or is he doing what he thinks Jose Mourinho wants, which is to say, they can't hurt us in that area of the field. Let's, you know, yeah. uh, let's not waste our energy chasing idiotic causes. Um, well, now he seems to be saying, now he wants to see that. But what he's doing also is talking about how this is a, a mental attitude which isn't just going to change, which you don't change overnight. Say you come into a club... Say you come into a club and and the and the old club has been run by has been run into the ground by a mad a mad manager. I mean, I'm talking hypothetically here. I'm not talking about any specific club. Mm-hmm. Um, do you expect the, the club just to be running like clockwork a couple of weeks after the after the madman's been been carted off the premises? Of course not. It's going to take a bit of time to rebuild. You know, you've got players who have learned bad habits. You've got players who have absorbed all kinds of nonsense. Heads, their heads are full of cotton wool. And you need to knock that out of them and knock some brains into them. It's complicated. People think it's easy, but it's not as easy as, as all that. Um, Luke Shaw, in particular, now, again, the, the interesting thing about this, well, one of the interesting things about it is, is players' mistakes being highlighted by the manager. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't remember Ferguson really ever doing that. He would have to be so angry with the player. You know, it would have been like a player has already made the career-ending mistake. Everyone can see that. And eventually, you know, he would say, you know, screw He's that guy. He's just announcing the, the death of this manager. <laughs> and even at that, I don't really remember him doing that. He would just 
they'd just be gone. Yeah. <laughs> you wouldn't say a word about them a lot of the time. Yeah, I mean, so 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 it's it's curious to see that he that he's that he's saying that. But but again, you know, it's Luke Shaw. Whereas if you look at sort of the reaction to the game, it's it's not Luke Shaw who's drawing most of the criticism. It's another player um, who again didn't have a huge impact on the game. Can I have a guess? Who do you think it was? We go for top goal scorer in top English goal scorer of all time. Is he that yet, Rooney? Yeah, top, he is, top yeah. international goal scorer. He certainly yeah, is. Yeah, uh, Wayne Rooney. Um, Rooney was the one whose whose game was immediately the subject of um, you know uh, video low light packages uh, <laughs> circulating online, where everybody could look at all Wayne Rooney's worst moments from the game. And uh, you know, I suppose you're invited to to look at how how bad he is, and so on and so forth. Um, Mourinho again not mentioning this, but it is it is becoming you know a more and more interesting situation. I get the sense I get the sense the the Manchester United supporters are actually almost in uproar over this at this point. There was an interesting moment on Match of the Day. I don't know if you saw Match of the Day two. In fact, it was where, where Danny Murphy. Do, you know, speaking over some footage, you saw Wayne Rooney balloon across out of play or something, and he said, "Look at that from Wayne. You don't see that from Wayne Rooney." And the presenter was it Mark, Mark Chapman. Chapman. Mark Chapman. Chapman. Mark Chapman says, "Well, classic trolling by Ken." There, <laughs> it says it says to him, "Look, you know, uh, kind of almost tentatively." came forward with the point, well, actually, Danny, you know, I'll put it to you, you know, that, that, that some people say you do see that from Wayne Rooney. You actually do increasingly see that kind of thing from Wayne Rooney. And it was, it, it was like, uh, it was kind of like, well, you know, Wayne hasn't played the best football of his career. But, uh, you know, there wasn't really, it wasn't like they were sort of pulling him. But the, the idea of it almost being brought up is like, a, you know, we've, we need to talk about Wayne sort mm. of thing. Um, you know, it's, it's something that Jose Mourinho is obviously going to be aware of at this stage. What, what is he going to do? I mean, this thing seems to have stalled a little bit. What's, it, the way it is isn't, isn't working at the moment. He's got this difficult situation where the guy just down the road is being hailed as a genius by everybody and is streaking away. Is already six points ahead after five matches. Six points after five matches in the, in the competition that is most important. Well, the only competition that they're, that they're really <laughs> contesting the two clubs because Manchester United aren't in the Champions League. Um, so he's going to have to do something now. Um, and I just wonder if, you know, how, how, what... He obviously must be aware of this issue as well. Does he really think it's, it's not an issue? He must be aware of this issue. So what's he going to do? At some point, he's going to have to make a move on this. He can either double down on what he's been doing so far um, or he can, because what he's doing, to be honest, is, seems a bit incoherent. He did say when he took over that Rooney wasn't going to play as midfielder. Yeah, very That's, clearly. And he denigrated his ability to play as midfielder. Exactly. And there, and <clears throat> the, the other day against Watford, it's basically what he was doing. You know, he was constantly in midfield. So has, has, has Mourinho decided he was wrong about that? I mean, Mourinho has been a little bit ruthless uh, when he came in. Look what he did to Bastian Schweinsteiger. You know, Schweinsteiger was just bombed straight out of there. It was like he'd kind of made up his mind before he arrived. He'd kind of been looking through the squad and drawn a line through Schweinsteiger's name early on. Now all you hear is, oh, Manchester United need a controlling player in midfield. You know, he's playing Marwan Fellaini. Hmm. You know, Marwan Fellaini in midfield. He's not, when's Marwan Fellaini ever, ever been given a good performance in that position? 
when he played well for Manchester United, he, he was playing as like a, uh, a kind of upfront, you know, a guy that you can play long balls at. Mm. Um, so what? Is, and, and you've got Schweinsteiger, who okay, Schweinsteiger is not the player that he was, which he's better than Fellaini. Let's let's not. He's also shorter. Considerably shorter. He's, than he's shorter, but that isn't necessarily as much of a disadvantage in that position, where which is mainly about getting the ball and playing sensible passes to try and bring others, other people into play. N'Golo Kante is a lot shorter than uh, Marilyn Fellaini as well. Oh, yeah. Um, and I, I don't think you'd be holding that against N'Golo Kante. No, but Mourinho does like the talls. Likes the tall player. I mean, when Mourinho took over at Real Madrid, he had a, a broadly similar type of situation with Raul. Raul, who was, who was the record goal scorer, um, who was a little bit past the best, to be fair, a bit older than Rooney. Raul is 33. Rooney is, is 31 next month. Um, but uh, what happened was they had a sit-down, and at the end of it, Raul left the club. Uh, now, Mourinho says, oh, I wanted him to stay. I wanted him to stay. But you get the feeling that he wants him to stay, and a bit like he wanted Ryan Giggs to stay. You know, it was kind of like, I want you to stay, and the role that I have in mind for you is dot, dot, dot. And Raul said, you know what? I think it might be time for me to leave. And that's how it worked. In this case, he's been a little bit, um, well, I don't really understand what's happening here. Because it seems as though, I think that Guardiola, if he'd he'd taken over the job, would have just said, okay, thanks for all the goals, Wayne. And we're going to move on in a different direction now. I really think he would have. So he's not being ruthless enough, is what you're saying? Well, his ruthlessness, he, he was plenty ruthless with Schweinsteiger, yeah. who, you know, you sometimes have to remember, is, a, is the same as Rooney in Germany. He's, he's like Rooney with a World Cup. You know what I mean? Yeah, but the league Rooney, isn't in Germany. The fans don't care about blasting Schweinsteiger to anything like the same extent. It's and I'm not saying that all, Man United fans are all backing Rooney either, but he, he is a player who creates emotion in people because yeah, he's been at the club and done quite a lot for so long. Nobody cares about Schweinsteiger in England, that is true. Yeah. But, you know, in terms of his status in the game, he's, uh, I think, a similar kind of character. I mean, um, there was there was also, I guess, uh, Amino Raiola. Should we mention Amino Raiola? He's, he's spoken to uh, the Daily Mail. He's done an interview. Your favourite super agent? Uh, well, I mean, look. He's who, up there. It's, it's basically him and George Mendes, right? Yeah. I mean, who else? And we're asking you to choose, Ken. Pini Zahavi. Uh, uh, Pini Zahavi. Well, you, you know, he's, not, he's kind of off the radar a little bit. You know, he likes to do his stuff in shadows, which I wouldn't say Minarella likes to do. He seems to be pretty happy with his high profile at the moment. For instance, his, his Daily Mail interview kicks off. I respect Arsene Wenger. He has a philosophy that says, these figures don't match what I want to do, so that's okay. Real Madrid, the will of Zinedine Zidane was strong, but we're not sure it was the will of the club. This is Pogba, why he didn't go there. Um... He basically says, he says, it's, it's not just a case of spending the money, it's shouldering the responsibility of spending that money and saying, yes, this is my man, Arsenal have the money, but do they have the balls? <laughs> and so he's drawing an analogy between balls and willingness to spend huge amounts of money on his players in the transfer market. For instance, the balls to give Mina Raiola like £30 million, which is what Manchester United did over the summer. Um, we go where we need it, but he raises an, he raises an interesting little thing, and kind of almost just as an aside, um, talk. I, I tell my I tell my players we go where we're needed. United will always be one of the biggest clubs in the world. Blah blah blah. Yes, they had no Champions League, but they needed us the most. They've been talking to us for two years about Pogba. They would taken my player Sergio Romero, and we had kept the lines of communication open. Mm-hmm. That's an interesting one. Mm-hmm. Sergio Romero. They had taken my player, and we'd say, I wonder. 
I wonder. See, you know, you see what's happened with Mkhitaryan so far seems to be kind of quite a peripheral figure, which I'm really surprised by. I assume that he would be a, a key player. And yet he seems almost to be a sort of sideline figure. At the moment has a, some injury problem or certainly had a Jose Mourinho problem after, after last week uh, where he was subbed off at halftime and some players seemed to bottle it, was, was Jose Mourinho's analysis. I, I hope there's no Sergio Romero type thing happening here where it's kind of like, we're pretty sure we can get you Pogba, but are you interested in taking also a Mkhitaryan? I think we could do the two as a bundle. You know, but it's it's kind of like the way that you you know you don't really want to pay for the landline, you know you, yeah. you don't want the landline, yeah. but you can only get the broadband and the TV with uh, a landline that you're never really going to use. Yeah. I hope that Mkhitaryan is not in the position of being a landline yeah. for. No and what the hell is Sergio Romero with all this? He's too good. Well, sir, well, Romero. I mean, he's sub landline. I mean, what 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 other crap do they try and sell you? Uh, free Wi-Fi dongle. Yeah, free Wi-Fi dongle, dongle. But, but it costs you a lot of money to use. Sergio Romero is a Wi-Fi dongle. Um, so look, whatever, you can, you can have a look at that. He, he talks a lot uh, in the Daily Mail. But the other thing I wanted to mention was, uh, was a match that happened so long ago. Um, was uh, Liverpool against, or Chelsea against Liverpool on Friday Night Football. And this was an interesting one to watch because it was the first time I'd actually sat down and watched Friday Night Football. I didn't watch all of it, uh, but I saw a good bit of it. You know, they've got like all these little features um, you know, uh, Jamie Carragher goes to Melwood and hangs out with Mane. Thierry Henry goes to Stamford Bridge and hangs out with his his old teammate from Juventus, Antonio Conte. Now, bearing in mind, Thierry Henry was, you know, was he still a teen? Just out of his teens when he went to Juventus, and Conte would have been one of the kind of big dogs in the Juventus dressing room. I imagine they probably exchanged two sentences. <laughs> you know, the first one being hello and the second one being goodbye, <laughs> if there even was a goodbye. Uh, but they kind of had to pal up a little bit and do this interview. Conte said something, oh, you know, Henri said something in Italian to begin with. Conte said, oh, my English is, you know, is not so good. And, and Henri was like, no, you have to speak English. We're in England now. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, has, has Henri done that thing again like he did with Pablo? You know, what is this guy good at? <laughs> <laughs> I see him. He does a lot of things, but, but what is he really good at? But um, they were talking about David Luiz and how bizarre it was. This is, a, this is a weird thing. The vocabulary that was being used to discuss David, the signing of David Luiz by Gary Neville and Graham Sooners was just, was as though, it wasn't like the, the normal words that you used to discuss a, a player transfer. It was bizarre. I just can't understand what's going on. You know what I mean? Neville, the thrust of what he was saying seemed to be essentially Conte didn't want David Luiz and Roman Abramovich at some point would have gone, look, I like David Luiz. So you're the coach, you sort it out. And that was basically... That seemed to be what, what was happening. David Luiz, by the way, was by far Chelsea's best player mm. in the game, which I think is an important thing to remember. It was actually Gary Cahill, the England international, who teed up Jordan Anderson for his uh, winning goal. Um, you know, it was, it was not... David Luiz had... You know, there was, there was a graphic then afterwards showing that he was basically top in every category, every statistical measure, most passes, most touches, most shots... You know, most tackles, most most recoveries of the ball. But what is this guy really good at? Yeah. You know? Sooners, Sooners said, well, the most important statistic is, did he keep the ball out of the net? Sooners <laughs> uh, <laughs> also said, you know, tactic, you can talk all you like about tactics, but that all goes out the window when you're not on the ball. I thought, what? That's surely, <laughs> literally when it's most important. <laughs> when you don't have yeah. the, when you don't have the actual ball. But the, but kind of the most interesting thing in a way well, there was two other things about the Friday Night Football presentation. You know, tubes. Yep. 
So he was doing an interview or an interview with Gary Cahill at the Chelsea training ground, and they had some like keep you upy contest. And I thought, this is ridiculous. I mean, look at this guy. I, to be honest, I didn't really know tubes. I, I never I, watched. I just, never watched Soccer AM. I just never. Really, so it was on at a bad time of the week for me. But <laughs> Saturday mornings. <laughs> um, but he, it turns out he's actually pretty good at you know keep you uppies, right? He's he has some ability in this respect. I mean, I'd say he'd probably be you if. Whoa, whoa, Nelly! I'd say I'd say he would because I mean Gary Cahill is a professional footballer. He had to take him on and keep every challenge. They drew the first one like you know how many times can you juggle a tennis ball in, in a minute? They drew on ninety each, and then Tubes won in the sort of sudden death. What a t- ninety with a tennis ball? A tennis ball, yeah. That is that is good. well, uh, well, nine. It's not ninety in a row. It was how many could you? So they would drop the ball oh, occasionally right, and then okay. keep going. But then they. It's not really the, keepy uppies. Well, the play keepy uppies while allowing it to drop. I don't know what you're talking about, Cameron. Well, it's not that's just kicking a ball up in the air. <laughs> well, the time you know what's the, well, how many times can you do it in a minute? But then the the playoff was you know how it was just keep doing it, and as soon as you drop it, it's over. Yeah. Uh, and Tubes won that one, and then they cut back to studio, and what they then showed was Roman Abramovich footage of Roman, Abr- Roman Abramovich sitting in his corporate box looking at a television which was showing the feature that had just been on in which Tubes <laughs> was beating his 100 grand a week international <laughs> central defender Gary Hale in a simple game of skill. And Abramovich, I mean, you don't know what he said. You don't know what he was thinking. All you knew is that he just watched it. And Abramovich then sat there in the, in the corporate box with his son. I assume his son, because a, a boy who looked exactly like him had exactly the same expression, sort of looking around. Although I wonder if there's sort of a King Joffrey type of element, <laughs> you know. Uh, he is a little blonde, little blonde kid. He looks around. He's got quite a haughty stare, sort of looks down his nose a little bit. I just hope he likes Antonio Conte. Mm. I mean, I'm sure he didn't enjoy watching Chelsea lose 2-1 to Liverpool. But father, I wonder, father, I like this Tubes character. <laughs> <laughs> but has the... That would be debrief, fine, son. That would be fine. Has the debrief already happened? Remember Ancelotti talking about Abramovich's debrief, where you lose a game and he comes to the training ground the next morning. Mm. Um, I sat there with my son and watched us lose 2-1 uh, to Liverpool. It's, it's the worst experience I've had at Stamford Bridge. You know, how do you explain yourself? I'm sure that Conte uh, kept his temper. Um, but there's one other thing I want, I want to mention about Friday Night Football, which is... There's something I didn't know about the f- the format that they're doing. You know, this this Jeff Stelling uh, is on the couch. Yeah, very informal kind of uh, setup uh, vibe. No, very few ties being worn. I would say no ties. Yeah, uh, well, no, no ties. Uh, Thierry Henry didn't even tuck in his shirt. Ah, for God's sake! Yeah, um, Rachel Riley, Jeff Stelling on on one couch, and then the three soon as Carragher and, and Henri, uh, numerous strips out of studio and so on. But but then the post match interview with the beaming and triumphant Jurgen Klopp um, is conducted from the couch by Jeff Stelling. So uh, we're actually just going to hear a little bit of audio from that because they, they had a little bit of a technical glitch. So here's what happened. Everyone's had their say, haven't they, about your defence during the course of this season. So how pleased were you with the I resilience that they showed in the last 25 minutes or so? How pleased, Jürgen, were you with the resilience your defence showed in the last 25 minutes or so once Chelsea had got the goal back? Sorry, 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 Jürgen. We lost, we've lost the feed. Oh, well, obviously, no, we, we've lost Jürgen Klopp at the, the moment. Jürgen, so if you stay there. So he, he, can't, he can't tell us just how pleased he was at the moment. But I can tell he's pretty pleased. Jeff Shreves is going to ask him precisely the same question right now. And he even talked over Jeff Shreves' question. So, what this moment appeared to reveal 
was that Jeff Shreves, the king of the post-match interview, the king, mm. has to stand there in front of Jurgen Klopp or whichever manager it is, holding a microphone in his face for Jeff Stelling, who's sitting in a completely different place, to ask, ask a question. Jeff Shreves is just standing there in front. I think Jeff Shreves pulled the plug himself. <laughs> <laughs> Shreves is standing there with, with indignity. I mean, what would that be like for Jeff Shreves turning up in the, in the flash zone and then and, and Coppo, you know, say, you yeah. know, slapping him in the back or hugging him or Let's whatever do he does. this, Jeff. Uh, and, the, and he said, well, no, it, it's not actually me. I, I need you to put on this earpiece because you're going to be talking to Jeff, <laughs> Jeff Stelling. Yeah. I don't know. I, I, I just thought that was a little bit, you know, I just hope that it wasn't Jeff Shreves actually holding the microphone. I hope there's a flunky there to do that because if, it, if it's him standing there and not asking any questions, I just, I just don't, don't think it's right. Let's wrap up Ken Early's report on sport. For so long, Stoke City were held up as the most English of English teams, embodying all the traditional virtues that apparently still had a place in today's Premier League. Under Mark Hughes, though, they've been trying to break free of all that and had been doing a pretty good job until the latter stages of last season. That poor form has continued into this year. Jonathan Liu was at Selhurst Park to see them hammered 4-1 by Stoke as the fourth defeat out of five so far this season. Jonathan, what's going on there? They've been awful. Well, it's, uh, it's, it's a strange one, isn't it? I mean, I think we're about kind of a month into the Premier League season. I think we've officially got our first rabble. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, there were, I mean, the, the, the Stoke that, that you knew, like from the, the Tony Pulis years, they were, they were so good at defending crosses. They were, they were solid. They weren't, you know, technically talented, but, uh, you know, they, they, could, they could play football. They, they knew what they were doing. They could, uh, you know, they could, they could defend. They, they did all the simple things well. And what, what we saw here uh, against Crystal Palace, where they, where they lost 4-1, uh, and it really could have been more, was, was basically a failure to deal with these fundamental issues of, of defending and, and passing the ball to each other. It, it, it's, it was just the, one of the most dysfunctional performances I've seen all season. And, and it's, um, it's not the first time Soak have done it this season either. No, I mean they've they've conceded four goals, I think, in six recent league matches. If you go back to, uh, you know, the tail end of last season when when this had sort of begun to happen. The thing is, if you look at last season, they actually finished ninth, and they finished ninth for sort of three years in a row. They had seemed to have achieved the stability that Tony Pulis was always looking for. So, how has this kind of unravelled so quickly? I think that there's a couple of factors at play here. I mean. Mark Hughes rightly gets the credit for uh, for kind of metamorphosing them into a, a far more uh, you know attacking team, a much more much more of a kind of a, a technical side. Um, but he did inherit 
the the foundations of of you know what was a really good side. One one of the most underrated defenders in the Premier League in, in Ryan Shawcross, um, Stephen and Zonzi, who's uh, you know for the the first two seasons at least was was kind of a rock in midfield. And what what I think we've seen is is the balance going kind of too far the other way. They've lost too many of those those kind of clutch players. I mean they they sold um, Volscheid, who I thought was a you know really good central defender, uh, right near the end of the window and replaced him on. On deadline day, with with Bruno Martins Indy, who then gets gets thrown in at centre back for his first game, gets shifted out to left back uh, yesterday against Crystal Palace. You got Jeff Cameron, who's playing at right back and centre back, and and sometimes in central midfield. Glenn Johnson playing right back, left back, and uh, if you if you look at the body language of those players, and and look at the body language of, of Mark Hughes, I mean he doesn't. It doesn't look as though none of them really look as though they know what they they want to be doing. They, they don't. There doesn't seem to be a coherent plan, a long term strategy in place, and I think that they're all slightly beginning to despair that that Hughes is the guy to get them out of this. Yeah, is there something a little bit kind of sad about this in a way, um, from the point of view of English football that it's so ashamed of its own traditional virtues that it hires Mark Hughes specifically to strip them away, and then is left with this kind of jelly-like entity that that's Stoke <laughs> have now become. I mean, what was wrong? The, the interesting thing about it, when you look at it, is that they they had this really strong, uh, you know, manly, old-school, uh, you know, team that would beat you up. But the supporters, the Stoke supporters themselves, actually started to revolt against it and, and wanted something different, even though this is, this is exactly what English football is really supposed to be. Yeah, and I think there was there was definitely a kind of a kind of guilty a guilty shame about uh, about what what Stoke had become associated with, and and you know speaking personally, I thought the the Stoke rampage was was one of the most thrilling sights in English football for for those, those few years, and the supporters may yeah they they did eventually kind of revolt against against Pulis, and, and you still find very little appetite for for a Pulis return or, or a road to return to the, to those days but i mean it, it's also interesting how little they got involved are they getting involved in in the team supporting the team and it was quite interesting to see in the uh, the local Stoke Sentinel this week this a Stoke fan going our our fans uh, are a shadow of what they used to be they they they're a they're not supporting the team. Uh, they're about as quiet as, as I ever remember them. So I think this kind of this mood of of despondency is is it's, it's almost you know, set in like a disease, and I don't think anybody really quite knows how to how to cure it. Shay Given was in goals again. He, Jack Button was injured earlier on at the start of the season, so Given is forty years of age now, and he, he's got this sort of this sort of bonus chance, I suppose, near the end of his career. But um, how many times has that he's conceded four goals now? Ken, you gave it to me earlier. Five times Five in the last times. seven games. Did he? Did, does he look like a, essentially an old goalkeeper at this stage? He doesn't. I mean, it's it's not kind of sticking out like a sore thumb. Where where you do see it is in things like like crosses, where a much uh, more athletic, agile goalkeeper would command their box. There there are crosses that come into the area, and you think, well, a top class goalkeeper would at the very least come for that uh, and deal with it. Uh, whereas, given although he's he's not you know uh, he's not doing badly as a shot stopper, he's not commanding his area in, in, in the way that I guess he used to, and, and a lot of uh, a lot of younger keepers these days would do. Mm. Um, we haven't even mentioned uh, the true star of uh, of the proceedings, which who was of course Alan Pardew. 
um, who I saw conducting... Why do, why do we all laugh if we just say the name Alan Pardew and it's enough to, to get a reaction? Did you see this video of Pardew, you know, conducting the crowd? The crowd was <laughs> singing the Pardew song and he was uh, yeah. he was literally conducting it. So, you know, I mean, he, he was obviously the, the mastermind of everything that was happening out there. Um, I saw him afterwards saying that he... It's kind of interesting, actually. He was saying, you know, we want to make it a more effective team, a more powerful team. It sounded as though he was almost rebuilding his team along old-fashioned Stoke lines, or that's that's the idea that he's got. Yeah, and I th- well, if you look at what what Leicester did last season, that, that that apart from you know all the you know the 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 more obvious repercussions, there there has been kind of a, a legacy in in terms of a lot of mid-table teams or smaller teams are. Are probably thinking if if we can get a little bit of a physical edge on the opposition, we can actually go. We can actually take that quite a long way. And what we were talking about earlier about Stoke, it, it's only a good thing for the Premier League if certain teams, uh, you know, try something different, try something a little bit different, try to, try to adjust their stuff. You don't really want twenty Swansea's any more than you want twenty Stokes. And I think you know, Pardew is. Uh, a bit, bit more of a pragmatist than um, than people give him credit for. Um, that's what he's tried to do over the, over the summer, and um, it seems to be working so far. Cracking stuff, Jonathan Liu. Thanks a million. Cheers. Would you feel a little bit uh, sorry for Shea, given on the timing of his break into the first team? It's <laughs> coincided with the the team itself falling apart around him, apparently. In his forty first year, the Lion in winter. Uh, it's it's tough. The Lion in winter could do with a few. Decent centre halves to <laughs> to maybe head away a few crosses. Yeah, it's difficult. I mean, I was looking at. I was. I, I mean, it's not mean to say I was watching to see if Shay Given was at fault, and it didn't strike me that he particularly was uh, on those goals. Mm. You know, he does he does get beaten. I think more by shots into the middle of the goal a bit more than he used. To. I mean, against Spurs last last week, you know, there was a, there was a good goal by Son, which looked like an amazing finish the first time you saw it, and then you saw that it was kind of into the middle of the goal a bit. But, you know, what can you do? It's, it's certainly not Shea Given's fault, Owen, that Stoke keep uh, maybe one or two goals, but not uh, the 28 or so that they've conceded. We haven't talked about the Bundesliga yet this year. It's about time to do that now. Just having a look at the table here. Okay, yeah, Bayern, Bayern at the top, yeah, that's, that's familiar enough. Third place, they have something called Rassenballsport Leipzig. Raphael Hanningstein, who the hell are these guys? These guys are the football team vehicle of Red Bull. They're not allowed to call themselves Red Bull in Germany because of uh, various regulations. And it's a team that's been taken over in the fifth division uh, a few years ago and then systematically propped up all the way up to the Bundesliga where they're now starting to threaten the established um, powers. It's sort of interesting, uh, Raphael, you say that they're not allowed to call themselves Red Bull Leipzig, but obviously Rasenballsport is is RB. What else do they do to get across the Red Bull branding? Well, they play in the Red Bull Arena, which is um, (laughs) very subtle. The rules aren't that restrictive. (laughs) Subtle. uh, No, naming rights, you can do with your stadium whatever you want. Of course, the sponsor is also uh, Red Bull on the shirt. So it's funny because... Outside Germany, a lot of people look at RB Leipzig and automatically call them Red Bull Leipzig because they're familiar with Red Bull New York and you know Red Bull Salzburg, etc. But in Germany, they have this artificial, almost um, slightly insincere um, adherence to the rules, which you know pre- prevents them from being called that. Investment in football from a rich company like Red Bull sounds like a good thing, right? Uh, in a way, yes. Um, I. 
personally, I think some of the um, animosity and hate they generate among the more traditional fans is a little bit over the top. But you have to understand that Germans and German football is not used to big corporations or even big rich uh, individuals taking stakes in clubs and then um, basically building them up into superpowers. Here, the bigger issue, I think, is that there is not even a pretense of having done things organically or um, or with the purpose of uh, you know supporting football. I think many people see this as an exercise in branding where football is just being used as a means to an end. And that's what, what they dislike. Um, they're worried that other companies will just artificially create teams, clubs, and do the same thing. Um, Leipzig is a bit different because it is a football city and the fans there seem to have taken the club to heart and they like the fact that they're back in the, in the Bundesliga with their city being represented. But uh, outside Leipzig, I think a lot of people see this as a very artificial construct and, uh, and simply don't like it. Can you explain a little more, Raphael, there, about why this is so unusual in Germany? You mentioned there that, that uh, as a football culture, it's not used to the sort of wealthy benefactor model. Yeah, well, Germany has this uh, peculiar rule called 50 plus 1, which basically means that as a club, you have to be majority owned by your members. So clubs are not corporations. They may be run as such or they may have part of the business being run like a corporation with the club being the ultimate majority stakeholder. But it is still a club that has membership rules that have people voting for the board. Uh, Leipzig only do that on paper. So if you want to vote uh, for the uh, president of Leipzig, you have to become some gold-plated member and pay, I don't know, a few thousand euros to be a member. So in practice, um, no one can really become a member there. And they are circumventing these rules in a very systematic and uh, in a quite brazen manner. And it really, it really annoys people. They, they feel that what they like about German football or the, or the Bundesliga, that has it still a, a sense of social cohesion, a connection with the people there, uh, a democratic element is being not just undermined, but just be, be basically completely disregarded by what RB are doing. And uh, it's it's something that people find very hard to get to get used to. Well, I mean, there seems to be then a bit of a gap between this animosity from fans of other clubs. <clears throat> I mean, there have been, for instance, Dor- some Dortmund fans ostentatiously refused to. They went to Leipzig, as far as I know, and then refused to actually go to the stadium for the game. Um, you know, because they didn't want to watch this monstrosity uh, take on their team. So, you know, if, if there's this animosity from fans and so on towards them, fair enough, but. That doesn't seem to be shared by the league because if you're you're saying they're kind of, you know, almost um, taking the piss out of the regulations to get around them, uh, the league, could you imagine, come down a bit harder on that, but for some reason are deciding to see how this one plays out? Uh, The league are in a very uncomfortable position because the league is, of course, made up by all these clubs and most clubs look at at RB Leipzig and, and are a bit worried. Um, not just because they, you know, their own position is threatened, but they don't like the the business concept. I mean, Leipzig is not the worst. It's not the worst possible scenario because at least they have fans. They will take fans to to away games. But you know, what's stopping a guy just doing it somewhere somewhere else where there are absolutely no fans? Hmm. Uh, <laughs> well, you can't. But that's that's the reason. It's not as though that is the reason that it can't be done. You need. You actually need to have the fans in order for the clubs to work. I mean, is Germany littered with 
towns, cities with no football clubs and, and potentially, you know, an, an army of supporters. I mean, the Red, Red Bull Leipzig seem to be getting big crowds at their games. As, as you mentioned, it's a city with a, with a lot of football history that, you know, things didn't work out in the past and their clubs, you know, their planet blew up, let's say, uh, and now it's back. You know, I, I don't necessarily see that this could be replicated somewhere else, even if um, the money was there. Um, well, Leipzig were chosen as a strategic location for a club because they were devoid and the whole East has been devoid of, of a professional first-tier club for some while. And I guess if it hadn't been uh, Red Bull coming in, changing the beds, changing the colour, changing the name in such an overt manner, the reaction would have been very different and much more um, charitable. Uh, something in a similar, uh, at a similar level but smaller scale has, of course, already happened with Hoffenheim. You remember, they are a village mm. club taken over by a local billionaire who doesn't really want to make money, who doesn't want to brand it necessarily in any way. And uh, this is a club without fans, completely artificial, uh, artificially uh, founded in the middle of nowhere, where there, there was a feeling that because there is no club, maybe people want to go and see, see games. And it, in a way, it's worked uh, at a lower level. But that, that, strange enough, hasn't provoked quite the same animosity simply because I think RB are such a behemoth when it comes to taking interest in sport and uh, people just really wondering and, and worried that they will ride roughshod over the whole league and maybe make that uh, just another stepping stone to taking bigger, um, a bigger stake in football and maybe other clubs and other corporations taking a lead from them. When they, um, they ran, they still run Salzburg, um, and they actually turned Salzburg into quite an impressive little club. You know, they've got some kind of alumni, including people like Roger Schmidt, the Leverkusen manager, Mane, the Liverpool player. Um, they were doing something quite sort of progressive there, which was which was pretty successful. It seems as though they at least, you know, for, for a company that's involved in football, mainly for marketing, they do seem to take the sporting side of it quite seriously. Uh, yes and no. I mean, there is no doubt that Ralph Rangnick and the people there are super smart and they know what they're doing. They, their scouting is excellent. Their training is excellent. Some of the best football brains in the business work for RB and work for Rangnick. The problem with Salzburg is that there's now a real backlash uh, inside the team where some of the players have actually um, come out and, uh, and criticized the club, but also the fans because they're realizing that for all this wonderful work that you just mentioned over the last few years, they're now at a position where they're just a feeder club to Leipzig. So they're just a little Austrian Bundesliga club who whoever have any decent players are uh, expected to just kick them up the, the, the food chain to, to Leipzig. And that's what's happened, and that's what continues to happen. And that's something that, then, of course, undermines the whole idea that, well, the idea of sport as a, as a real competition where every team plays just for itself is, is undermined and not even, I think, adhered to in, in principle by RB with their very clear hierarchy of clubs. Brilliant stuff. Raphael, uh, great as ever. Thank you. Pleasure. Sorry, Ken, just a, just a second there. Nothing beats the cool, crisp... I'm just pouring it, actually. What's, that, what's happening here? I'm pouring a cool, crisp, energy-giving taste of a nice cold can of Red Bull, Ken. Wow. Oh, it's beautiful. Um, take a slip are you sponsored here. by Red Bull? I've just not usually, they usually sponsor, like, these uh, space divers and... Mm. You know, Joe racing Cannon. drivers and whatnot. Listen, that can's down. I've got some energy. I might as well try another one. Uh, oh. oh, Jesus. I didn't call for that. Oh, no. 
That's all. That was not the sound effect that I called for in our pre-show meeting. Yeah. Simon delighted with himself over there. Really? No, I'm just saying, uh, no, 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 that, that sort of advertising is not going to work at me, Ken. Do you think it is a... Uh, I'm, I'm going to open this third oh, can, though. God. I'll try to There are other energy drinks available, by yeah, the way. There are, indeed. Do you share the concerns of the traditional big clubs in Germany? Um, I, I find it hard to make up my mind. I mean, a little bit... It's difficult. It's it's a hard one. I mean, they're, they're, I suppose the clubs, to a certain extent, there's an insecurity. Oh, what if we're all displaced by these horrible corporate entities? Um, the the trans- transformation of the sport into a billboard is kind of is irritating. It does feel a little bit as though life is being taken away from us. Sure. Uh, on the other hand, uh, they they play nice football. They've got money, in. and fans from Leipzig have a team to support, even if. Even if it is a, a hideous monster. You've a little bit of Ballon d'Or news to bring us before we go. Yeah, well France football are gonna announce tomorrow the details of why they've split up with FIFA um towards Ballon d'Or. So I remember I was at this press conference in twenty ten at the World Cup where they announced they were joining up with FIFA, they were joining the Ballon d'Or, which is the European Footballer of the Year, formerly known as the European Footballer of the Year, their award that they've been awarding every year since the fifties, according to a journalist vote. And they were joining it up with the FIFA World Player of the Year, which was a much more recent award. I think it was from mid-90s, maybe. Um, maybe not even that long, actually. And that was voted for by national team uh, pl- uh, captains and coaches. So they joined the two together in t- uh, from 2010 to create the behemoth that is now um, awarded every year in, in Zurich and that Ronaldo and Messi have been fighting over and has become increasingly high profile. The Jimmy Nesbitt show, of course. Yeah. <laughs> Jimmy Nesbitt show. They've split up now. Um, FIFA uh, and uh, France Football now not presenting the same award. There's going to be two awards. I don't know how they're going to decide which one is more important, why why exactly the relationship has broken down. Um, some in France Football are apparently happy to get their Ballon d'Or back. Um, but which one the players will prioritise? Which one Jimmy Nesbitt prioritises is the question, yeah, Murph. Which I one mean, will he Well, basically, it, it falls down on which award ceremony gets Jimmy Nesbitt. That's the one that the players will <laughs> automatically gravitate to, I, I presume. Our second podcast today will be all about the All-Ireland Football Final, one of the weirder All-Ireland Football Finals in quite a few years. Mike Quirk, Carol Mannion will both be on, and uh, we'll also get the inside track on the, the scalping that was going on between the teams in the tunnel beforehand. Scalping. You tried, but you you didn't really carry it. It's scalping, I think. Well, no, I can't remember. I, I wrote down a little script for this, um, you know, for promoting yeah. the other show. And what happened was I had a word in that apparently auto-corrected to schooling. So I don't know what that word was originally that it's I was intending to. Scalping, I'd say. I think, well, it wasn't scalping, but that was the, schooling was the closest. Scalping was the closest word that came into my head. Too much, uh, too much backstory. <laughs> thanks for listening to this one. <laughs> Sorry about the end. Thanks, Ken. Yeah, thanks, Tom. Thanks. Thanks, Phil. Thanks, Ken. Thanks, Ken. Thanks, thanks very much. How dare you speak? Which one is that? That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home, those, those, those boys.